this is the thing I think that gets me most volcanic about the discussion of running because we have reduce it to this thing that's you know it's good for some people but not for others and you know he's fast and i'm not i wholeheartedly believe that the human animal all of us evolved as runners you know we are to running what fish are to swimming what birds are to flying and we've turned it into uh an activity that's associated with pain and inadequacy and punishment you know like oh i eat too much i better run and uh, I, I want to be in shape for football. I better run. Running is this awful thing you have to do in order to do something else. And that's my, my biggest beef is I was actually the guy told there are lots of people who run. You are not one of them. You're 250 pounds, six foot five. You know, you should be like guarding the president from an assassin, you know, throwing your body in front of a bullet, not, not running 26 miles on asphalt streets. And I believed it for a long, long time until – you know, I suddenly got set straight. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Running Tales podcast. My name is Craig Lewis, and in this week's dive into the world of everyday runners who've done extraordinary things, we have a real treat for you. That's because our guest is none other than Christopher McDougall, who, despite not being a runner himself when the project started, has transformed the world of running since his best-selling book, Born to Run, was published in 2009. For those who don't know, the book tells the story of a reclusive Mexican tribe whose members regularly ran 100-mile ultramarathon distances in incredibly fast times. Born to Run delved into how the tribe managed to do this while wearing thin sandals, and it examined the impact of modern cushioned running shoes on injuries. It's a fantastic book, and if you haven't already, you should definitely read it. Chris has gone on to write Natural Born Heroes and Running with Sherman, as well as to publish a second edition of Born to Run, concentrating on training techniques. That was published in November last year, so check those books out as well. But in our conversation, we looked back at Chris's life before Born to Run, how his father inspired and embarrassed him by jogging around the school to get his fitness back, and then running 3.30 marathons in his 60s, about his fascinating life as a war correspondent, and about how he ended up running with donkeys. There are plenty of running hints and tips along the way too. I just hope you like the B-52s. So let's dive now into our conversation with Chris McDougall, in which I started off by asking him whether he was always a runner. I did it. Actually, I should say I observed it more than anything because I had this kind of like Superman father origin story where I watched this. I absorbed this transformation and this dedication that my father had to running. And it didn't really interest me at all. I was live and die, ride or die basketball. That's all I wanted to hear about. That's all I did. Philadelphia was basketball hotbed back in the 70s when I was growing up. You know, Dr. J, Moses Malone. And so... That's all I wanted to do. But I, I watched my dad who, when he basically left home at 17 years old, joined the Marine Corps, did his service, came out and was like working two jobs while trying to put himself through college at night. And he said he used to study because, uh, you know, he worked by day, went to school at night and he would study by walking around with a book in one hand and a big sandwich in the other. And the only way he could stay awake to study was by you know, chewing and reading and walking at the same time. So when I was like five or six years old, he got pretty heavy. And so what he would do in the morning, we lived about six blocks from my kindergarten. And I used to be like so embarrassed because 
I'd be sitting in my kindergarten class and I could see my dad like huffing up the street in his like baggy gray sweats, wearing his like Chucky's black Converse on his feet. And then he would run laps around the school, you know? And I'm just like, oh, like mortified, like dad, go away. But this is his way of getting back into running. He busted out his old Marine Corps sneakers and, uh, and sweats and just started running a half a mile, a mile. He got to the point where, by the time I was a teenager, he was busting out consistent double 330 marathons, you know, in, in his wherever he was, like 60s by that point. And he would run every year the Marine Corps Marathon in D.C. and then either Philadelphia or New York. And they're only a few weeks apart. He would end up D.C., bust out of 330, three weeks later up in New York, bust out another 330. And the other thing was I, he, had, he had this training system. This is how old school it was, Craig. His training system was to run the number of miles that pertain to the month. So come January, February, not doing too much. It's cold. It's shitty out. But come April, four miles a day. May, five miles a day. Six miles. Now, if you think that's easy, wait till you get to friggin' August. <laughs> it's hot, and you're busting out those nine a day every day. So I, I grew up watching this, and I think it got into my, my bloodstream that this is an activity that is utterly transformative. It can make you the person you want to be. He, you know, he chucked off, I don't know, like 70, 80 pounds and was a diehard runner through the rest of his life. And, and do you think it was in your, I mean, you say in your blood, but also like in your in your genes that you were, you were kind of destined to be a runner, even though you didn't realize it at that time? So that is a fascinating question. And I would say unequivocally, yes, but not for me, but for everybody. And uh, this is the thing I think that gets me most volcanic about the discussion of running because we have reduced it to this thing that's, you know, it's good for some people, but not for others. And, you know, he's fast and I'm not. I wholeheartedly believe that the human animal, all of us, evolved as runners. You know, we are to running what fish are to swimming, what birds are to flying. And we've turned it into uh, an activity that is associated with uh, pain and inadequacy and punishment, you know, like, oh, I eat too much. I better run. And, you know, uh, I, I want to be in shape for football. I better run. Running is this awful thing you have to do in order to do something else. And that's my, my biggest beef is I was actually the guy told, you know, there are lots of people who run. You are not one of them. You yeah. are 250 pounds, six foot five. You know, you should be like, Guarding the president from an assassin, you know, throwing your body in front of a bullet, not not running 26 miles on asphalt streets. And I believed it for a long, long time until, you know, I suddenly got set straight. Yeah, I find that that really interesting, actually, the whole idea around the way running is brought into our lives now. It's this thing you do in PE or whatever, and it's like a punishment if you if you don't do something right in class. And the number of people I've spoken to on this podcast who absolutely love running and do it as part of their everyday routine now who hated it as children and who hated it when they're at school because rather than it being this natural thing that we do it it became this this punishment to them i think most people are still on that shame and pain spiral that they look at their running how often do people run and feel really joyful and satisfied with it or how often they like, oh you know something's bothering me my foot hurts I, I wasn't that fast you know I should be doing better should be doing more shoulda 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 and you know I was having a conversation with someone recently who was actually a former uh British elite runner uh Tina Muir 
And in the conversation, she's like, oh, I should be doing, I should be doing this. I'm like, girl, you are like a, an elite runner. When are you going to be satisfied? And that's that's the problem. I, I think that the fun and playfulness has been stripped away because so much of the running machinery, you know, the, the profit-making machinery is, is based on making you feel inadequate. If you're inadequate, what do you do? Well, you buy shoes and you sign up for races and you buy training programs and you buy gels and goos and you buy as opposed to just, you know, have some fun. Yeah, definitely. Well, we've we've jumped Christopher very quickly into some of the stuff I wanted to discuss later. <laughs> and I, my 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 sneaky plan had been to do this in a linear way, but <laughs> it's all good. That's me, man. Give me an opening. I'll jump on that soapbox. No, good for you. But I just want to reverse a bit because after you grew up a little bit and you went to college, you ended up working as a as a war correspondent in some pretty horrible places like Rwanda and so on. And I mean, A, I'm just interested in that. But um, B, I, I wonder how that shaped some of your philosophy on life and into that on running. Well, I'm looking at that photo of your left shoulder. What's what's going on there? What am I seeing there? Uh, I, I think that would be um, that's a guy called uh, Brendan Rendell running through running through Africa. He ran the um, the width of Africa over a multi day a multi day thing, and that, that's him running with um, uh, with, with school children somewhere in Africa. I'm not exactly sure where. Yeah, yeah. So it, it sort of brought me back. It looked like a very familiar scene, but I, I couldn't exactly place it. So your question was being about a foreign correspondent in Africa. Yeah, yeah, just working out there generally. I mean, I mean, first of all, how did you how did you get into into that? Because that's a pretty amazing career move. Yeah, it was pretty unexpected. I always kind of wanted to write, but didn't really do anything about making that happen. And uh, I had banged around in Europe for a few years, doing odd jobs and teaching English and things. And and I had a friend of a friend who's working for the Associated Press in Madrid, and my Spanish was pretty strong, so I applied for a job with the AP in Madrid. And ended up somehow getting hired to be the AP correspondent in Portugal, a country I like, never visited, didn't speak any Portuguese, didn't know anything about Portugal. But the bureau chief, I don't for whatever reason, I think she, I be honest, I think she was only sticking me in there short term. I think she thought someone better was going to come along. She could butt my sorry ass out of there quick. So she, I think she kind of plugged the hole that she had with with me. But so I got trained up for the job in Madrid for about two weeks and then stuck on a train from Madrid to Lisbon. And then the day I arrive in the Lisbon office, I, I walk in with my stuff and it's a two person office. It's me and another person. And I walk in and the other person goes, Oh, thank God you're here. A civil war just broke out in Angola. I'm like, Oh, that's, it's too bad. What do you care? She's like, we cover Angola. I'm like, why? Because it's a former Portuguese colony. Again, you're seeing the depth of knowledge I had at this point, it was? <laughs> who knew? And so even though Portugal is on the extreme Western part of Europe and uh, Angola is in sub-Saharan Africa, somehow we are the official news correspondents for this, mostly because all the news coming out was in Portuguese. A language, of course, at that point, I did not speak. About less than a month later, I was on a plane from Lisbon to Luanda and you know, to stepping off the plane to cover the Angolan civil war. And it was a man, you know, figure it out or go home quick moment. What was going on was the photographer that I was assigned to work with me. He spoke Spanish and Portuguese. I spoke Spanish and English. So I would ask him a question in Spanish. He would ask somebody in Portuguese. He get the answer in Portuguese, translate it to Spanish and I would translate it to English. <laughs> and this is how we were gathering news. But 
I, I had a feel for it. I think the thing about it was I, I felt I really like I think I've got pretty good attention deficiency disorders. I like to run around, I like to see a bunch of different things. And I like to try to figure out how to tell that story. So I, I settled into the job pretty, pretty well and was a correspondent for a good few years. So I guess eight years traveling around uh, Europe and Africa, mostly Spain, Portugal, and then uh, all the conflict zones in Sub-Saharan Africa, Congo, Angola, Mozambique, Rwanda. And yeah, I covered those. Yeah, and I know, obviously, particularly in Rwanda, I'm sure you would have seen some pretty um, horrific things. I've I've heard you talk about it before, but I, I just wondered how that shaped shaped your your wider view on the uh, on the world and the idea, perhaps. And tell me if I'm just reading too much into things, but the idea of civilization sometimes moving too fast for itself. I, I see it as being completely cyclical. We just go around and around. So one thing that was so apparent in Rwanda was that if you think you're going to shit on people and they're going to take it forever, you're in for a very unpleasant surprise. And that's what happened. You know, you had one group that was dominating the other, shit on, shit on, shit on, and at one point, boom, it blew up in their faces. And then the minority party came, you know, racing back like Avenging Angels. You know, without being straying into things that I really don't know, but I feel like we're seeing this in the Middle East right now. If you think you're going to dominate, we're, we're seeing it in Eastern Europe, you know, with Ukraine, you know, you, you can't assume you're going to drop your big bloody boot on people's necks and keep it there forever. And honestly, in my own country, I I, I take a lot of the responsibility here. You know, I, I think the United States has sent a message, particularly in the past eight or so years of, tough, 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 you know, we're the best, you're the worst, we're going to bomb you, we're going to shoot you, we're going to build a wall, you know, we're tough, tough, tough. And like, where where is the humanity and the compassion? You know, we we have this, this screeching that started in this country about, we got to build a wall, and you know, people are coming across the border, open borders. Like, Dude, it's a humanitarian crisis. No one's coming here because we're such great people, our personalities are so wonderful, you know. It's not like people are coming here to be our friends. They're coming here because they are desperate and they're making a journey that is extraordinarily dangerous. They're doing it for a reason, not to get anything from you. In Minneapolis, you're fine. Florida, you're fine. They're not taking anything from you. They're trying to survive. And instead, we got to turn it into like, we got to get them, you know? So you mentioned, uh, you know, give, give me an opportunity and I'll start preaching. I'll start TED talking you. But that was the thing I I, I would see again and again in, in, in Africa particularly in Angola, where I spent the most amount of time and had the most warm welcome. I got myself into situations like one time I snuck onto a Doctors Without Border helicopter that was crossing over um, a ring. So the um, uh, Wombo, which was a, a rebel group, had taken over one of the main towns. Uh, and I'm sorry, it was Unitas took over the town of Wombo. And so uh, a humanitarian helicopter was able to fly over the government troops, and they had a 12-hour window to come in, check on the humanitarian situation in Wombo, and get back out. While he was able to sneak on the helicopter and get access to the city, which had been under siege, and no one got in or out for nearly a year. And I was there, except I missed the helicopter leaving. It left without me. So I'm stuck. I'm stuck in this town. It's in northeastern Angola, surrounded by government troops. I can't get out. And I had nowhere to go. There's like no hotels, no, no place to go. And a family took me in and shared their food with me, gave me a place to stay. 
and were able by ham radios to get word back to the Capitol that there was a journalist stuck in Wombo that needed to get out. And then, you know, a few days later, uh, a government helicopter came and got me out of there. So, but I look at the kindness. I'm a big dopey white guy in the middle of Africa and no one showed me anything except kindness. And so what I find is like 99.9% of the world just wants to like have lunch, play yeah. with their kids. And it's an other 10th of 1% that just fucks it up. You know, they just won't stop pushing and fighting and stirring up shit. And unfortunately it's the us older white guys who don't give a shit anymore. And we got to exert our power. So this is a very weird running conversation we're having, Craig. <laughs> that's what I saw. I saw that people want to enjoy and, and, and live and love and have a good time. And people in power stir up shit and won't stop. Yeah. No, well, I think it, yeah, it does seem to be going on throughout the world. And we have over here a, a government which is saying a lot of the same things around people coming into this country and using dreadful words like swarm and hate march and all sorts of things. But as you say, we perhaps should move back onto uh, running before before we end up with um, too many complaints from other old white guys. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Just lost that demographic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think after after you kind of left that that war correspondent role, did did and you you moved um, to do other bits and bobs of around journalism and so on? And I think that's eventually how you got down the line to kind of gather the idea of Born to Run. But my, from my memory of your story, you went actually down there to to find a an extremely different story in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. It is so weird how this all shook out. Uh, it's so weird. So what had happened was, you know, when you're working as a news correspondent, you sort of hit the ceiling pretty quickly where you know a lot more than you can ever tell. And so I was spending a lot of time in Africa and learning a lot of stuff. I knew a lot about Angola, but not many people really care. And that town I told you about, Wombo, after I got helicoptered out, you know, I spent three days, you know, living uh, in the back room of a very small bombed out house with a family. And this is a story that hadn't been told about what living conditions are like in a town that's under siege by its own government. Mm. So I sat down and I wrote a 3,500 word story like that night, you know, typing away. And the only way to get the story out was by a, a satellite telex. And I had to take this big box and then take it up on top of a hill and then telex it to a headquarters in New York. And to me like this, this was my masterpiece. Like this was my, this is my Moby Dick. Like I will never write any better than this. And all of our communication was one way. You, you tell X out, but you can't receive back in. And so it took a few days before I got a satellite phone link. So I call AP headquarters in New York and we go, okay, so what was the reaction to that Mona Lisa? And they're like, yeah, we, we cut it down to uh, about 300 words. Like what? And, like, and they go, I remember the words exactly. Like, hey, Chris, if, the country of Angola disappears from planet Earth, we'll give you 500 words. Until then, 300 is all you get. No, there's 3,500. That was it. You know, someone in Detroit doesn't care about yeah. what life is like in, in Angola. So what happened was I realized, man, I'm just absorbing all this information, but I got no outlet for it. So that's why I decided to move back to the States, uh, drop out of hard news and get into magazines. But the problem with that is when you're a magazine freelancer, you're competing with all those magazine staffers. There are plenty of guys on salary at Esquire and New York Times Magazine. They're getting paid whether they write or not. And so their editors want to get them out doing stuff. So 
as an outsider, if I show up with a magazine pitch, it's got to be pretty goddamn volcanic for anybody to hire me instead of using the person they have. It's yeah. got to be super juicy. And secondly, something that only you can do that they can't assign out and take from you. And so that's that's the real trick of freelancing is how do you make these pitches that are absolutely mouthwatering? And so you kind of live it on the hustle. You know, you're 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 constantly promising stuff. You're not quite sure you can deliver because if you knew it, somebody else could do it. So in this case, what had happened was I had a friend who was working for the Associated Press in Mexico City. And I was kind of checking in with her. And she says, uh, hey, you guys covering this Gloria Trevi story? Like, I don't know any about it. Like, Gloria Trevi, man, she was like the biggest monster star in Mexico in the 80s and 90s. And this is like 2000 and whatever it was, four or five, yeah, or so. And I go, no, you know, I hadn't heard about her. Oh, yeah, massive. She's like the Taylor Swift of Mexico. And now she's on the run from the law. And the story was that Gloria Trevi and her manager, rumors began to circulate about whether they're up to some kind of shenanigans with the backup singers. So when the police go to investigate, they knock on the door of the mansion. The door swings open. It's unlocked and the house is empty. Like Trevi, you know, Trevi and her manager and about 10 of these girls had just vanished. And so they started a manhunt across South America. They can't find them. And then there were sightings like, hey, someone thought they saw them in Argentina. Someone saw them in Bolivia. Someone saw them in Spain. But no one knew where they were. Again, just imagine Taylor Swift and uh, whoever the guy she's dating now, the football player. Imagine those two just vanished with, with six other girls and no one could find them. Like the most famous faces, they couldn't see them. So I, I called the New York Times Magazine and said, hey, here's, I got a great story for you guys. This pop singer disappeared. I think I know where she is. I'm going to track them down and get an interview. And I'm also going to interview the families of her backup singers. And the New York Times Magazine is like, dude, good luck. If you can do it, go for it. Yeah, you got the assignment. I had no idea where the hell they were. So uh, I got the assignment first. And then when they were captured, they were captured in Brazil. So I had first gone to Mexico already to interview the families of some of the women that were involved in this clan. And a lot of them were based around Chihuahua. For some reason, Trevi and her manager used to recruit these young women from uh, the city of Chihuahua. And so while I'm in Chihuahua, that's when I first saw these images of the Tarumara. And I'm like, hey, who are the, the dudes in the dresses? Like, what's their story? And they said, oh, yeah, there's this tribe of amazing runners and live down in the canyons, and they can run 200 miles. And at the time, I was a, a contributor to Runner's World. I'd written a bunch of stories for Runner's World. And I'm thinking, why have I never heard about these people? Like, there's these people in North America that run these distances. I've never even heard about them. And that's when I thought, okay, this is a cool other story. Uh, and, and again, I only was tip of the iceberg. I didn't realize how cool it was going to get. Yeah. One quick question first before we move on, on to some of that. Did, did you manage to uh, did you manage to get that other story in the New York Times magazine in the end? I did. So, you know, it's I think, you know, it's not really luck. It's desperation that really fuels you like that, that panic. Of like, oh, my God, you know, I got it. I got to do this. What had happened was I was in Chihuahua. I'm interviewing the families. I heard about the Tarumara. And then word comes out that Gloria Trevi has been captured in Brazil. So I fly back to uh, my home in Pennsylvania and she was doing no interviews, no, no absolute radio silence in this Brazilian prison. So I called the AP office in Brazil, in uh, Rio de Janeiro. And because I, I was familiar with how the Associated Press works, I knew to call on a Sunday afternoon 
when they'd have whatever low ranking person, newcomer to the office would be working there. So I call up and I tell them, and I spoke Portuguese. I go, hey, listen, I asked it's McDougal, AP Lisbon. Uh, I need the cell number of uh, Trevor's attorney right away. And they're like, okay, gave me the phone number. So I got this guy's cell number and I call him up. I said, look, I'm calling from the New York Times Magazine, blah, blah, blah. We're going to do one story and one story only. Either you're going to cooperate and you're going to be heard or you're not going to cooperate and the other side's going to tell their story. And the guy's like, okay, but you got to get down here quick because, you know, Carnival is beginning on Friday and this is like Tuesday. So you got to get here like right away because when Carnival starts, that's it. Everything shuts down for two weeks. Oh, and by the way, she's pregnant and we don't know how. I'm like, what? She, yeah, somehow she got pregnant behind bars. We don't know how. So, yeah, I raced down to Rio and it just snowballed. But, yeah, I ended up getting an interview with her behind bars, the only one, and her manager, and got that into the Times Magazine and then circled back and said, okay, now that's done. Now I'm going to go back to those that, that tribe and pick that one up. Oh, fantastic. It was brilliant. And at this time, with with Born to Run kind of starting to ferment, were, were you actually doing any running? Did you have time to do any running? Yeah. Uh, so it was really kind of cool. So I was not really a runner when this was happening. And this, this was kind of that was the whole perspective of the story. Yeah. Which is when I heard about these guys, I go, well, how can these guys run? And they're 80 years old in sandals because everyone knows that running's bad for the body. Everyone knows you need orthotics and shoes. You know, everyone knows that the marathon is the ultimate challenge and Philippides died. So how are these guys running ultra marathons? Again, this is uh, back in the early 2000s. Ultra marathons weren't nearly as visible as they are now. And so you, know, you didn't hear about them. You know, you heard about marathoners, you know, you heard about Kenyan marathoners and that's it. You were not hearing about Western states or Leadville. Uh, so again, as a runner, for, as a writer for Runners World, again they were barely, barely on my radar. Oh yeah, the ultra marathoners as weird as out in the mountains. So I was not a runner. You know what had happened was I, I, you know, uh, rode competitively through college and then came out and tried to do some running and kept getting injured. You know, so-called injury, you know, plantar fasciitis, cuboid syndrome, Achilles stuff. It's funny what we consider injuries, which I don't even consider an injury anymore. It's you know, it's 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 discomfort. But, oh, it hurts. And I go to a doctor and they say, oh, you're injured. Oh, you need orthotics. Oh, you need to rest. They, they treat it like it's a multiple, you know, fracture of the, of the foot. It's not. It's just discomfort. So, and they were always telling me the same thing. Hey, you know, running's bad for the body. All that impact is bad, particularly for big bodies like yours. You're 260 pounds. You should not be running. You know, I heard buy a bike so many times that I started to listen to it. So at the time of this story, I would not run a step in years and when i decided i was going to go down to the copper canyons and try to locate this culture i had to go buy a pair of running shoes i, I didn't even have a pair so oh, let me buy some running shoes in case i go down there and when i got down there i was so intoxicated by being surrounded by a culture of people who are running and it feels it looks light you know it looks like skipping it looks playful like yeah like, I want to do that. It's like going to a bar where everyone's dancing. Like, yeah, you know, I'm not a dancer. Hey, something you want to dance, you know? Like, you walk into a salsa bar, and suddenly you think you can dance salsa, even though you can't. <laughs> but that's what it's like. So I'm down with the Tarumada, and everyone's running. And it's so, so fun. Like, I want to do this, too. And that's when I met, you know, Caballo Blanco, and he showed me. So I was not a runner, and this was my introduction to, like, how it can be and feel. And and I think a lot of, a lot of your mantra, if you like, is – 
I mean, people will talk about it as running barefoot, et cetera, et cetera, and, and, and sort of get pushed down that line, which which obviously is fair enough and is a massive part of it. But but I think if I'm right, what you're really talking about is getting the getting your running form right and running more naturally. It's completely like, you know, if you walk into a karate studio, you know, you don't just start kicking boards and, you know, gear yourself with a bunch of apparel. If you are learning to swim, you're not covering yourself with a bunch of equipment and trying to swim the English Channel. In any activity you do, you start with the least amount of apparatus and you focus on the skill, anything. You're playing an instrument, you're learning to dance, anything. Learn the skill. Running is the only one where you're just, they start talking marathon immediately. You know, if you walk into a running store, first of all, that whole like confusing thing, but as soon as you tell someone, oh yeah, I'm a runner. Oh, really? Have you run a marathon? What's your marathon time? You know, how far, how far, how fast, how far, how fast? You're suddenly put in this competitive arena. Whereas he tells people, oh, I'm playing the violin. Oh, have you, have you performed at Carnegie Hall yet? Like, why not? No, I'm learning the chords. So this whole thing about barefoot running is both kind of fantastic and tragic because it's fantastic because people started to pay attention to the fact that, oh, this stuff, I don't need it. But what's tragic is it becomes this like niche, oh, you're one of them, as opposed to it is a vehicle for mastering the skill. Start with ground feel for how your body reacts and then only add protection as as necessary. Because I, I think, and and I guess probably a lot of other people would look at this, and, I, and what I'm trying to get is whether you did it first, is like, I've not done barefoot running. And my fear would be that I'm going to go out there, I'm going to step on every single stone, I'm going to come home with my feet all cut up, it's going to be a complete mess, and I probably would have done a mile by the time I, I chicken out. And and I, obviously, I kind of know some of the theory that says why that's all wrong, but I'm just wondering whether those thoughts went through your head when you were first presented with the idea of it. Oh, Craig, I think we should pause right now. <laughs> Send you out the door. <laughs> yeah, I actually did that one time. So I was having a conversation like this. I was on a radio station. I think it was like in Chicago. And a listener called in and said the same thing. Like, you know, I, I, really, I really want to try it, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure. And I'm like, where are you now? I'm at home. Why don't you just go run around the block? <laughs> Rather than talk about it, why don't you just do it? So yeah. This guy goes, yeah, I'll, I'll call you right back. I'm like, okay. So the caller hangs up and we continue with the show. And then the producer's like, uh, he's back. He's back online too. Like, okay. The guy's like, it was great. I ran around the block and it was so fun. I'm like, why didn't there ever occur to you to do that before you called in? But it's so funny how, what, what a fear of the dark we have when it comes to that. But that said, looking back, if you, you know, look at Born to Run, there's only one barefoot runner in there. And clearly, I think he's out of his fucking mind. So my perspective at the time of, of Born to Run is, oh, I, I ain't doing that. It's Barefoot Ted. Ted Ted's like the last guy I was going to take advice from. So I my my perspective, again, this is I, I am new to all this. I am new to running. I am new to barefoot running. I'm new to ultra marathons. And I'm meeting this guy and he's like, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, all right, it works for you, buddy. But you know, and, and what's funny about that is though, with Ted, we've now become good friends and it's been a almost 15 year friendship. And almost invariably, Ted will call me up. He'll start spouting some nonsense. I'll be rolling my eyes and making my fun, making fun of him behind his back. 
And six months after that, I'm doing exactly what he said. Uh, he is he is a lot of wisdom wrapped up in clown makeup. But anyway, so at the time, I also did not get it. You know, where I misunderstood was I thought the point was to run barefoot. And it isn't. The point is to understand how your body operates and then yeah. go from there. What was that in mind? What, what do you make of some of the elite runners at the moment and the incredibly cushioned shoes that they're using, which are apparently making uh, making them run world world record times, but but also the knock on effect that has for everyday runners who who then want to go out and think that a pair of vapor flies can make them run a marathon in two hours twenty. Well, if I'm not mistaken, it's not the cushioning; it's the carbon fiber spring, right? Isn't that carbon cantilever? So. Yeah. I think one big mis- misconception about cushioning is it somehow it's like a spring, you know, that like a cushion bounces and it doesn't. A cushion sinks and then you lift your foot off the ground. A cushion does not rebound. It's not popping you up in the air. And so th- there's that false apprehension among people that like, oh, I got these big thick hookahs on and I'm bouncing. You're not. You're just deadening the perception of impact. That's all. The impact is still hitting your body. It didn't go away. Still hitting your body. You're just not feeling it because it's all mushed into that foam. But the super shoes with that carbon cantilever, again, I'm, I'm a little ignorant because it, it interests me so little. It's kind of like when people talk about those like shark skin swimsuits that like Michael Phelps used to wear. I'm kind of not giving a shit. Like I got a lot other stuff I can do before the shark skin is going to make a difference. You know, uh, it's like these like kind of pudgy older guys that buy those really expensive carbon fiber bikes. Like, okay, you took a gram off your bike, but you still got a hundred pounds around your waist. You know, I was like, you can't buy your way out of it. So uh, with, with the super shoes, again, it's unfortunate. This is how the industry works. They take somebody, you know, Kipchoge, who is operating in the world of hundreds of seconds where a super shoe will make that difference. And everybody wants to be like him, but that hundredth of a second does not matter to me. It ain't making a damn bit of difference in my life. And yet that's what we want to buy. Um, and it's unfortunate. I think, and I'm guilty of it like anybody else, we'd rather buy than learn. You know, I'm trying to learn the Hawaiian language right now. I'd much rather buy it <laughs> if I could than have to sit down and learn it. So that's my thing with, with running. There, there's so many other things you can do which are free and joyful and fun rather than buying these you know, expensive things which will be completely defunct in six months when they're trying to sell you something else. That's, that's the thing about it is, man, listen, if the running industry was focused on teaching people good running form and then sell them a shoe, great. But they're not. You know, they, they take no responsibility for that. They just throw you the keys to the car and say, you figure out how to drive it. Yeah, and I guess it also comes back to this idea that we were talking about earlier as running as a natural thing. It's just like head out in, just head out in whatever shoes you've got, in your bare feet, whatever, go out on the trails, have a look around in nature. You don't have to be thinking that this week I've got to do a 5K under 20 minutes or that I'm going to be the next person to rush around the marathon really quickly. The number one priority perhaps should be go out and enjoy it. And if you've got a couple of friends you can run with, you'll probably enjoy it even more. Yeah. And the thing is that, too, is that unfortunately, not that many people have access to trails. So what happens is, you know, I think that we do lose that childlike ability to run. You, you watch a five year old run. That five year old does not look like anything that is someone who's doing who's running in the backpack and on the marathon. You know, the five year old's got quick little pitter patter steps 
and their heads up and they're looking around their back straight, right? Yeah. Anybody in the back pack you know, or even the second half of the London Marathon has got a head down, big, long strides, thumping along. You know, there's no quick pitter-patter. There is no elastic recoil. There's no biomechanics at work. It is the slow, you know, trudge of death. And so one thing is a trail is a natural corrective for that. You know, it's hard to run with a big overstride on a trail because, you know, you'll, you'll sprain your ankle. A trail forces you to shorten your stride, get a little more pitter-pattery, be more conscious of how your foot's touching the ground. It rewards you for lifting your, up, your foot up quickly and not maintaining a lot of balance on one foot at a time. So, yeah, I mean, a, a trail is a great natural learning mechanism, but most of us don't have access to that kind of environment. What we have access to is the man-made environment, which is long, flat, and smooth, and we have our cushioned shoes, and that rewards you for overstriding and running, you know, with a long, slow stride as opposed to a quick pitter-patter. So that's the thing that needs to be relearned. You know, you, you need to relearn that five-year-old technique. So, you know, it's funny. So we, it's hard to describe. It's hard to teach. And then uh, Eric Gordon, who's been like my coach since the Born and Run days, he's like, you know, dude, if you just ran in place to rock lobster, you'd learn perfect running form. You, you can do it. You can learn it in five minutes. And I go, that's it. it was like, that was like the great auto corrective for me. Run in place, barefoot, rock lobster. You've learned perfect running form. Oh, there you go, everyone. I want everyone to have a little try at that and feedback maybe on our socials how you, how you get on. <laughs> you know, what's cool about that, Craig, is his, his idea was, well, you know, when you run in place, you can't land on your heel and you can't overstride because you're running in place. When you run barefoot, very quickly, you'll, you'll learn to stop thumping. You will become a little bit softer on your landing. And rock lobster is like 98 beats per minute. So you start to, you get that quick rhythmic stride. Like that. So when you start to run in place to that quick stride, that quick cadence, you're lifting your foot off the ground, you're landing on your forefoot and um, you're, you're driving with your knee. You can't kick back either. It doesn't work. Kick back, running in place doesn't work. You have to lift your knee. So you should check it out. It is unbelievable how effective it is. Definitely. No, I definitely have to give that a try because actually listening to some of what you're saying about being more uh, shortening your stride because you're having to go out on trails. I I used to do a lot of running just on roads and I'd go out. I mean, half my problem was I'd go and try and run every run as fast as I could. And I was getting a lot of problems with my ankles. And over the last couple of years, I've, I've really slowed down and I haven't had problems with my ankles. But what I perhaps didn't think about was that I've also been going out on trails a lot more rather than the roads. And I wonder how much that has actually fitted into that, to that improvement. Oh, I would bet substantially, substantially. The other thing you're doing too is variety of movement. You have a lot more lateral movement. You're not, you're not suffering the same repetitive motion situation and you're not trying to hold your body weight as long on each individual leg. So yeah, you think on the trail, your 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 foot's moving all kinds of different rotations. It's flexing, it's moving, uh, and you're you're popping that foot up more rapidly. So, yeah, yeah, I bet that was a huge um, influence. And 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 just very quickly, because I know Born to Run Two is is uh, yeah. came out, uh, towards the end of last year, didn't it? And and that yeah. is that gives people a lot more of those those tips of how they can improve their own form and and what they should be doing. Yeah, so the funny thing, two things happened. One was. When I wrote Born to Run, I deliberately did not put any training information in there. I'm new to this. I'm not sure. I know what I'm talking about. I try to make that very clear in Born to Run. is like, 
hey man, I'm I'm the monkey in the spaceship. I don't know if I'm making it back to Earth or not. You know, we'll see. And that's the perspective I wrote Born to Run from. But at the time when I met Eric Gordon, he began to coach me. He said, So what do you want? Like I know you want to do this race, but what do you want from your running? And I go, not much, dude. I just want to be able to go out the door and run as far as I feel like any day, any day I want. And I don't want it to be this thing where oh, am I going to get hurt if I do too much? And he's like, that's a good goal. And then we, we got to talking because, you know, he and I get a ton of messages from people all the time asking for training advice. And I always say, well, you know, what? talk to him, dude. I'm not a coach. Talk to Eric. And it's kind of the same questions over and over and over again. You know, I'm injured in this. Oh, I got plantar fasciitis. And, and the same thing. So two things occurred to me. One is, hey, Eric, that thing you promised me about being able to walk out the door, 15 years later, it's exactly what I do. I feel like on a whim, I can walk out the door, do 10 miles, not even think about it. Like, oh, where, what do I feel like doing today? Hey, I think I'll do 15, you know, just, just on a whim. And so it worked. What he showed me has worked. But the second thing is that, that message of embracing running as part of your entire life, not just this like punishment you got to do because you had a pint of Hagen dazs that message we felt has not really filtered into people's lives. And so that's what we wanted to do. So I wanted to do a book that gave all the training advice that I have absorbed from Eric over the years, everything I would have put in the board and run, but I wasn't quite sure at the time. And secondly, I really wanted to reverse that, to me, that that downward spiral, like, oh, I got to run because I ate too much. Now I'm going to run. Oh, now, now I'm sore, but I'm going to have to run anyway. Oh, now I'm injured. You know, oh, now I put on weight because I'm injured. You know, it's just down, 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 as opposed to reversing that, like being mindful and conscious, like, hey, I, I, I did my rock lobster. My running form is pretty good. I can't wait to go out and try. Oh, that felt great. Oh, I got my cadence down, my breathing down, my focus down. You know, an upward spiral, it feels better and better instead of, oh, I'm getting sore and injured and overweight and heading down. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think one thing that will keep people running perhaps more than anything else is the idea of running with donkeys. I've got to talk to you <laughs> about donkeys <laughs> because yeah. this was, uh, uh, yeah, this was, well, it's not quite your latest book now, is it? But one of your, one of your more latest books is uh, all about Sherman. Tell people about Sherman if they don't know already. Yeah, running with Sherman. That was funny. You know, I was so in the uh, lifestyle of conceiving of a, of a writing project and knowing what it was going to be. So for Born to Run, I didn't conceive of it as a book until after that race was over. That I was kind of involved in a magazine story, another magazine story. And we went down the canyon for this race. And then as we're coming back out of the Copper Canyon, we were on some like bus coming out of, you know, out of Chihuahua, like four o'clock in the morning. Eric and I are sitting side by side. I'm like, you know what? I, I think this is more than a magazine story. I think it's a book. There's so much going on here. And at the time, so everything had already happened. I just had to write it. And Natural Born Heroes, same thing. Running with Sherman, I got a call from an editor that I worked with at the New York Times. And I was on my way to the dentist. And she calls up, she, hey, listen, I'm looking for some new columns. You know, I just want to check in with you, see what you got. And I'm like, yeah, sorry, I've been kind of distracted lately. We we took in this rescue donkey and it's been a real fiasco. And I don't know if it's going to live, but this is going to sound weird. Uh, but I'm trying to make it into my running partner. She's like, why? I said, well, we got a friend that tells me that every animal needs a purpose. Humans, donkeys, you need a purpose. You need something 
that gets you moving and that movement is medicine. And so you got to get this donkey moving or it's going to die. And I'm trying to make it go running with me. And she's like, oh, my God, that's going to be such a great book. I'm like, no, Tanya, I'm not writing a book. Tara, I'm not writing a book. I'm just, this is is my life. This is not a project. She's like, that's why it's going to be a great book. What had happened was we lived in a very rural part of Pennsylvania, a place called Peach Bottom, Pennsylvania. And we had one day been out on a hike and saw this woman coming up the trail riding a donkey, which is kind of weird. It's It's not an East Coast United States animal. You know, it's a Rocky Mountain thing. It'd be like seeing someone riding a zebra. So my kids were kind of enchanted by this woman with her pack saddle and his donkey riding the trail. And but the rest of us forgot about it. But my nine-year-old daughter never did. So for her 10th birthday, I was like, yo, Soph, what do you want for your birthday? She's like, a donkey. And I'm like, come on, dude. You know, dial it back in. Maybe, uh, you know, you want some Barbie stuff? You know, you're not getting a donkey. I really want a donkey. I, I could ride it to school. And, and I sort of think like, you know what? It's actually not out of the question. <laughs> we lived like two miles down a rural road. There's no reason why she couldn't ride the donkey tied up. I could run up there, pick up the donkey and bring it home like that. And so that little fantasy in my brain, like, man, that'd be pretty freaking badass. My kid just rocked up to school on her donkey, tying it up to the, like the bike rack and then me going to pick it up. So I started spinning my wheels and I started asking around and we had a neighbor who said, actually, we got a person in our church that's got a donkey and we got to get we got to get it away from him. He's a hoarder. This thing's in bad shape. And so, okay, cool. Free donkey. So I went and got it, but it was in much, much, much worse physical and mental condition than we had anticipated. And that's why our friend Tanya, who was the, the woman we'd originally seen riding on the, on the trail, she said, you got you to give this thing a hobby, a job. And I'm like, dude, I, I don't know what a job is for a donkey, but I like to run every day. I I'll take him running. And that was it. So the thing was, could we turn sherman into a long distance running partner and then what i soon realized is that the only way to solve a problem with a donkey is to throw more donkeys at the problem so the more donkeys you have the actually the easier it is so we ended up with three donkeys and me and my wife and our friend zeke uh who was a young kid struggling with some mental health problems we became this whack pack of donkey runners Oh, it's just incredible. I actually love that story. I, I love the idea that not only were humans born to run, but but so are donkeys as well. <laughs> and man, they will toast you. You know, if you ever get out to Colorado for the burrow races where, you know, people run 29 miles with their donkeys, what you see pretty quickly is, man, the donkeys have got it wired. They handle those mountains, 12,000 feet, 29 miles, no problem. The trick is convincing them <laughs> that they actually want to do it. Once they're on board with the concept, they're dynamite. Fantastic. So just finally, just to finish off, if there's any tips for for either donkeys or or, or more importantly, us um, looking to get into running, looking to start, what would your what would your very quick tips be to people? Yeah, I, I think the thing is do less. Do less. Less shoe, less miles, less speed. Do less. One thing we tell people, so we, we hear this a lot in Border Run 2, we are telling people that their initial runs when they start should have a a low heart rate at a conversational pace, but a high cadence. So you want to be at like 90 strides per foot, like 180 strides per minute, but at a conversational pace. So if you and I were going for a two mile run, we'd be talking exactly as we are right now without breathlessness, but our feet would be like this. And so we get a lot of messages from people like, I can't do it. Like if I do 180, 
I can't breathe. And I go, do less, relax. And what usually happens when people run, it's this big muscular thing. They're lifting their feet high and they're wearing their big cushion shoes. The thing about a cushion shoe is it's a lot of shoe that you need to get off the ground. It's a lot of cushion that you need to clear. So you got to lift your foot pretty high to keep that big, thick sole off the ground. And so it creates a, a, an obstacle. You know, you're running with a big thing on your foot. You now have to, to lift up. And you're trying to run too fast, too far. So just do less. You come out of it feeling, oh, I should have done more. Perfect. You know, finish your run feeling, oh, I could do two more. Perfect. Do them tomorrow. I, that's kind of my thing. But people don't want to hear that. They, they're constantly on, got to run faster than my wife. Can't get checked. You know, got to be faster than her. Got to train for a marathon. Got to get the carbon fiber shoes. Instead of just like, hey, man, just go out, do less. Leave yourself a little hungry every day. Fantastic. Oh, well, Christopher, that's amazing advice. Obviously, we all know it's advice that's really gripped the world over the, the last uh, the last 15 years or so. So thank you so much for for sharing a little bit more of your wisdom with us today on, on the Running Tales podcast. Hey, Craig, I enjoyed it. And I really appreciate the fact that you showed up early in the morning and fired up with good questions and ready to go. I really appreciate it. Thanks again to Christopher McDougall for joining us on this week's Running Tales podcast. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode as much as I did. It was absolutely fantastic to dive into some of Chris's wisdom. These days, Chris is based in Hawaii, hence why he's talking to me at the end there about me having to get up so early in the UK. But I should thank him, firstly, for uh, staying up so late in, in, in Hawaii himself, and secondly, for being so generous with his time and for agreeing to come and speak to me on Running Tales at a time where I put out a bit of a Twitter plea for guests and what a guest to have respond. Running Tales fans, if you do get out there and you try a little bit of barefoot running, you try a bit of uh, running to the B-52s, please let us know. Contact us on our social media channels. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter or X, whatever you call it these days. We'd love to see your videos. It'll just know how you got on doing that. Or you can contact me at craig at runningtales.co.uk. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a rating or a review wherever you listen to it. It really does help us to reach more listeners and to attract fantastic guests along the way like Chris. Quick reminder as well that you can catch up with all the stories we tell here on our Substack channel. That can be found at runningtales.substack.com where we have a whole load of stories from the world of running. Thanks again for joining me on this week's podcast and I look forward to seeing you again next week for another Running Tales podcast.